Hey, this is Matt, and you listen to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is episode two of really special Tony Rice Church Street Blues 40th anniversary podcast that I've been putting together. Um, if you missed part one, do go back and check that out because that has a whole bunch of people who knew Tony, played with Tony. Um, it features White Rice, who played on Church Street Blues, Tony's brother. It features Alison Krauss, features Mike Marshall, Brian Sutton. It's, it's great. Go and check out that. There's some fantastic guests. But... This is part two. Part one focused more on people who'd played with, worked with, new Tony. This is a bit more sort of based around people who've been inspired by Tony and about the ongoing legacy of Tony's music and Church Street Blues. And this has been just as much of a delight to record. Um, there's some really great stuff coming up in this. I had a blast doing it. Um, and it's just fun celebrating what is my favourite Tony Rice record with some other people who love it too. Um, and first up is somebody who is always a joy to talk to about guitars and about bluegrass and about Tony, and that is Bob Minner. Um, Bob's going to chat about what Church Street Blues means to him and share some of his sort of thoughts and insights. Um, yeah, always love talking to Bob. Here comes Bob Minner. I turn 57 next month, and I can remember buying this record. Well, actually, the cassette. bought the cassette first. Um when it came out in 83 and it was all, you know, where I grew up in Missouri, it was all the rage with everybody who loved Tony. You know, it was like, if somebody had a Tony record, it was like, go to their camper, you know, and it obviously they didn't have a record player with them, but you know, if they had recorded it to a cassette or whatever. And when this record come out, it just kind of really, um, it was just different, you know, but I have a kind of a, you know, I have a theory about that. You know, Tony was 32 when he recorded that record. And it came out in 83. And, and you know, I took some notes. I was looking at his discography because I kind of wanted to see the progression of, of his records. So it's like in eighty in 78, he comes out with Acoustics, which is his first jazz record. Uh, 79 is Manzanita, uh, still the gold standard. Uh, 1980 is Mar West. 81 is Still Inside, another jazz record. 82 is Backwaters. So he's on this jazz kick. And then in 83, he comes out with Church Street Blues. So it's totally different. But at the same time, he's also doing things with uh, the Bluegrass Album Band. Um, in 83, Volume 3 of the Bluegrass Album Band comes out, too. So he's, you know, he's he's in every lane. He's in, yeah. you know, the jazz thing he's doing. Uh, he's in, you know, the bluegrass album band, and then Church Street Blues. And I, what I found kind of interesting about it is that I don't know if it was expected by the fans, um, but it's obviously if you look at the credits and his thank yous on that record, he thanks Clarence White, Doc Watson, Norman Blake. And Gordon Lightfoot. And what I kind of find interesting is uh, th those particular ones, because Clarence, even though he didn't do like a solo record in that way, in 1962, he recorded 33 acoustic guitar instrumentals, you know, at his house. There was another guy, Roger Bush, playing second guitar. And so that came out. 
in 2000, I think 2008 as a CD compilation. But Tony would have known, obviously, with his connection with Clarence and everybody, he would have known about those 33 guitar instrumentals. So it's just Clarence and this other guitar player. In 1964, Doc came out with, you know, Doc Watson, the first Vanguard record. And Doc's playing banjo, guitar, harmonica, and vocals. Um, and then John Harold's playing the second guitar uh, on a couple of songs. And then, of course, Norman in 76 came out with Whiskey Before Breakfast, which is mostly him and Charlie Collins. So, and this is just a theory, but it just kind of seems interesting that the ones that he gives thanks to on the record, and of course, he's a big Gordon Lightfoot fan, so he's going to give that anyway. But as far as the guitar players, they had all done similar kind of things at different points in their career. Of course, Clarence never expected that tape to become a record, you know, mm -hmm. but still Tony would have been aware of it. So I find that kind of interesting that he seems like he's just following a natural progression of people he respects. And then he comes out with church street blues. So it's just, a yeah. Thing. Yeah. And like some of the other songs on there, things like streets of London, you know, Ralph McTell, a lot of his records, that Tony would have heard that on, for example, are just guitar and voice. They're not big produced things. They're very simple singer-songwriter settings of stuff as well. Sure, sure. But the thing about the thing about doing those records is, first of all, nobody had ever heard Tony do that, you know, in that kind of stripped-down setting. But that's tough to do. That's not an easy thing to do, you know, just walk in and it's just you and your instrument and, and you're doing these things. And of course, you know, I, I don't think he's going back and overdubbing anything. Obviously these are just live takes. He's singing and playing at the same time. And it's, which really just kind of shows you how great he was at what he's at, 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 at who he was. He knew who he was as an artist, obviously, but you know, I, in fact, I just listened to the vinyl, um, you know, earlier this morning before we, we hooked up. And just really listening to it, you know, for probably the millionth time, but maybe with, you know, a little bit more definitive ears because I knew we were going to discuss it. And it's just flawless, you know. And the thing that I find interesting, I, and I think it's with a lot of other people, whether it's it's Norman or whoever, um, especially with Tony, we forget that that record is 40 years old. Hmm. And if you think in, thing, in terms of what 40 years is, you know, I graduated in, in, in 1984. But, you know, sometimes with our music, we get lost in the, the chronology of it, you know, because we love it so much. So when I put on Church Street Blues, to me, in one way, it's kind of, it's an album that's always been there. It's something I've always loved. And when I put it on, it's kind of a new record because it always sounds fresh. And I kind of disconnect that, man, that's 40 years old. And it's still, like all of his stuff, still holds the gold standard. You know, it sounds like it was done yesterday. Mm. And I think that's part of the, part of that magic too is Billy Wolf being the engineer. You know, Billy Wolf is just really, really great at all that. So, yeah, anyway, it's just a special record. And it does. And that's one of the joys of acoustic music, particularly when it's recorded sort of pretty cleanly is that it can sound a bit timeless it depends on the material and the delivery of it and but the stuff can sound yeah. an awful lot dated than a full band album is going to sound 
and he just feels like you could almost be sitting in a room with Tony just listening to him play the guitar. Yeah, yeah, it's got that, it still has that effect. And, you know, um, I've always wondered, you know, is that the old antique he's playing or is that any of the Santa Cruz guitars? Maybe that's a question for Wyatt, if he wants to chime in on that down the line. It'd be interesting to know. Um, But that record also, you know, the instrumentals, like Cattle in the Cane, Gold Rush, Jerusalem Ridge, those were just time-honored classics to begin with. And it's kind of funny now. It's like with anything else with Tony Rice, you know, his versions of those kind of become, you know, the, the I, for lack of a better term, the alternative standard. It's just, you know, you hear young guys or whoever, you know, we all tried to play Gold Rush, you know, like Tony. We all tried to play Jerusalem Ridge like Tony. We all tried to play Cattle in the Cane and, and uh, for myself, kind of failed miserably, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he really quantified versions of those traditional fiddle tunes really in a way that n- nobody else had kind of done. Uh, at least, you know, I would think Doc had certain things that he played uh, a certain way. I mean, I would say certainly Doc's version of Black Mountain Rag off of the Circle album that's that's definitive. Um, Norman, things he did on Whiskey Before Breakfast and elsewhere, those are definitive. But there's something about Church Street Blues, and I guess it's because the record goes by quick, too, when you're listening to it. And that's the other thing yeah. I noticed this morning, you know, um, as opposed to listening, like, on, on iTunes or something, when you have to flip the record over. The record really plays quick. It moves quick. Um but those instrumentals are just, you know, that's the alternative standard to those. So if you don't learn the original versions, you learn Tony's and it's just as great. So, And there'd be people out there who treat those as the versions. That's just the only version they've learned and the only version they know. And, you know, hearing a different version that's older might oh, slightly yeah. confuse them. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and that's a great point, too. You know, um, for, for some guys just coming into bluegrass in general or bluegrass guitar at that time. Um, yeah, they may have learned gold rush and that's where they learned it from, you know, and still play it. And it's a challenge to play that stuff. Still, you know, those versions like on gold rush, like his second round, um, you know, it's signature. It's, it's not easy. It's a thing. Um, Cattle in the cane, uh, same way. Uh, he just had a way of, of putting a spin uh, on, on the phrasing on on certain sections of it that just kind of became the things that, as guitar players, young guitar players, we all kind of shot for, you know. And, you know, and, that, and that's the thing about it. You, if you sit down and try and review them and learn them again, it's not easy. You know, there's some, there's some, technical ability with what he did that uh kind of i don't really hear anybody else doing you know refining those fiddle tunes and making them so different yet so but he kept inside the uh 
he kept inside the borders of it. You know, he always returned to the melody. So yeah, and plus all the other song selections on there. Um, you know, Church Street Blues, uh, Orphan Annie, uh, Streets of London, uh, and a lot of those like Pride of Man, Streets of London. I had never heard before when I was that young. First bought the record, you know. So that kind of opened up some new, some new things to me as well. Um, yeah, and I'd like to, you know, obviously we can't ask him, but it would be great to, uh, to somewhere somebody have the input on why he picked those particular tunes, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, yeah, still a great record. Forty years later. And it'll be, it'll be great at 60 years and 100 years from now. It'll still be great. And you can come at it from all those different points. You can come at it from the point of view of the guitar playing. You can come at it from the point of view of uh, the song selection. You can come at it from the point of view of the singing. And, like, it's, you know, it's it's interesting on all of those levels. Yeah. I, uh, I was talking to my wife because she's a big Tony fan, too. We were just talking about just how we we miss his singing, Miss that voice. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, the, it was it was so identifiable, so unique, so original. Um, yeah, so I, I miss his singing as much as I do any guitar playing, you know. And I think, too, you know, um, you can't overlook Wyatt's backup on that, you know, he's playing on four tunes. Um, and man, just, you know, solid as a stinking rock. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's young, you know, I don't know how old, how old he would have been there, but quite young. If Tony's 32, why it's probably, I would say maybe in his twenties, maybe. So, yeah. And just, you know, when your brother's Tony Rice, you're going to learn how to play guitar pretty good. I would think, you know, um, and so Wyatt's backup, that's the other thing too. If you can separate, if you can listen to the record and just somehow in your brain kind of separate yourself from what Tony's doing and just kind of immerse yourself in the rhythm playing uh, that Wyatt's doing, man, that's, that's kind of go to school stuff. Yeah. So, and, and it's, it's nice, incre- you know, incredibly exposed in those settings as well. He's got nowhere to hide, has he? No, and that's the thing about you know it's about that's the thing about those kind of records is that there yeah there is no place to hide there it's you're all out there, um, and you know I think if he could have stripped down on any of Tony's records if he had the ability to go back and have the masters and just pull up Tony's acoustic tracks and vocal tracks in other words if you could take Manzanita. And and at the console, pull everything out except Tony's vocal and guitar. You know, you make a Church Street Blues version of Manzanita. It would be just as clean, just as exposed, just as great, because he really was that great. Um, you know, so yeah. Um, I think younger generations, younger guys coming up. This is one of those landmark records that, you know, it's just kind of required listening. Um, and it's a good, and really it's a good way before anything else to get into Tony Rice. You know, I, if nobody had ever heard him before and they were a young guitar player, you know, just, I mean, knew getting into it, 
I'd probably give him this record first of Tony's work and go, here, this is Tony Rice. Check this out. Um, and maybe get him hooked on just the the bareness of it all and the rawness of it all and the exactness of it all and expose mm-hmm. him to that. Then probably lay man's needle on him and then uh, backwaters. I don't know. Probably just everything after that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's a record I grew up with um, and it's a record that I still, I still dearly love uh, as I think anybody who, uh, you know, is a fan of Tony would, would also, uh, they'd say the same thing. And I, and I think it's nice that he left it with just this. And it's the same way, like with a lot of records, it's like Skaggs and Rice, hmm. that album. I'm glad they didn't make another one. It would have been great, but I'm kind of glad that they didn't because it gives us a snapshot into something very special at a very special part in time. And I think this record is the same thing. If he would have done another, you know, volume two, um, I don't know. I mean, it would have been great, but there's just something about this being the only one with him, just guitar and vocal that I think that makes it endearing. Cool. That was Bob Menner. Um, next up, we have somebody who wasn't born when Church Street Blues came out. One of the, the younger people on this podcast It's a perennial friend of Bluegrass Jamalong, Jake Eddy who is a huge fan of Tony, huge fan of Church Street Blues, and is going to share some some of his thoughts and sort of memories of listening to this and what this record means to him. Yeah, so I was I wasn't born for another quite a little while. <laughs> so so I don't have that initial memory of of hearing that thing when it was brand new, but it certainly um had such a strong effect on me. Number one, I think because it's you don't, you know, Oftentimes growing up, I thought of Tony as more of a band player. I always heard him in band settings, uh, whether that be with Crow or with his own band or whatever, with Grisman. And so I think here in Church Street Blues was like you get to hear the raw, unfiltered Tony. You know, it's there's nothing but him. The occasional Wyatt is on there, of course. But like it's there's so many intricacies there that, you know, are so easy to hear on this recording that maybe aren't as prevalent in others just because of the thing of, of playing in a band. Um, you know, so I remember when I heard it the first time, that was my thoughts of like, holy moly, there's so many, there's just so much going on. Yeah. And it's like the first time I could ever really hear it and zoom in on some of the more, you know, the finer details of his playing. Some of those little inner workings, like the cross picking and the, the sort of the, that, that middle ground between playing rhythm and lead that just gets a little bit lost with other instruments. Even on the Skaggs Rice album, you don't always hear completely what Tony's doing, but this is just so exposed, isn't it? Yeah, it's really incredible. And like, and, and you know, uh, playing solo is something that, that a lot of players don't like to do. And a lot of players do like to do it. I'm in the camp of really enjoying solo playing and it, you know, probably a lot of that has to do with this record even because I remember just thinking it was so daggone cool. It's just amazing to hear someone, you know, generally unaccompanied or, you know, on this record, very little accompaniment. Uh, You know, it takes a certain kind of player to be able to stay afloat when you're that exposed. And I think Tony on here is not not just staying afloat, but he's just just amazing. It's just so good. And all those little choices you've got to make about how you're going to fill the gaps if you're 
if it's just you, you know, you get that in some of the Carter family records, just the bass runs and some of the strums that for them. Tony does it in a totally different sort of way. And it's, there's nothing else quite like it. I, I agree. And I think the great thing about Tony's approach on there too, is like, or, or one of the, the great things about hearing Tony play with, you know, by himself when he has so much freedom, his, his chord voicings and his choice of, of harmony is what really amazes me. So like the lead playing is always great. But some of those chords, those passing chords and substitutions and stuff that he uses on there is just just out of this world cool and, and just so Tony. Yeah, and just the like the tone of it and the this it's it's like being in a room with him. It's really intimate, right? It doesn't it doesn't have that like band I think band records sometimes have this kind of need to entertain you know, and and be flashy and, and have these extreme arrangements and all this stuff. And this record is so much more, it's just really natural sounding, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's beautifully recorded. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds great. Um, it sounds really big. You know, I love to listen to it like in front of the turntable or on, in, you know, in front of some great monitors and stuff like it's, um, you know, it's as close as you're going to get to being in the room, <laughs> you know, at yeah, this point. Yeah. And it really rewards headphones as well, because like you say, it's such an intimate thing. Um, it's, yeah. You know, it can, you can totally get lost in it. I mean, there, there were times in my life probably where I listened to church street blues straight down every day for, I mean, months, a year. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been big chunks of my life where this record has been just huge. And it's still, I mean, it still amazes me. And where does it sort of sit for you in terms of the Tony albums? Do you have a favorite Tony record? Is that too hard a question to answer? Oh, man. I mean, I do have a favorite. I don't know if it's Church Street Blues. It's in that conversation. I mean, holy crap. It's definitely, (laughs) for me, probably if it's not Church Street Blues, it's like Native American. And, Mm. And I think... The, the similarities between those two, they're just kind of more sensitive recordings. Like, uh, and I love Tony's burn and plan and his really fast, crazy out stuff. But I like his more, I like the softer side of Tony's discography. I, I think it's, I think he pulls that off really well. Yeah. And it, for me, it sort of sits in with Skaggs Rice and maybe with Tone Poems as well. And those just sort of solo or duet quiet more intimate things it's just i love hearing tony in those settings yeah it's great because it's like it it shows his like wide range just as a musician i mean because you hear you know he's a shredder right i mean you know he can go totally crazy and and play these mind-bending solos and these long linear ideas and stuff but he has a lot of restraint too and you can hear that on church street blues and native american and like even blake and rice and Hmm. Uh, yeah, so de- I mean that's that's one of my favorite sides of his playing, no doubt. Yeah, that's really. Cool. Are there any particular um, any particular sort of songs that that are favorites of yours or that stand out in terms of what Tony's doing? Man, so yeah, on Church Street Blues, I mean, there's, I, you know, when you get that record, like the first hearing the first notes of Church Street Blues sets the mood for the whole thing. I mean, it like. It's always been that ropes me in, you know, I hear that. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, you forget how good it is if you had some time in between. So obviously the title cut is is great. Orphan Annie is pretty near and dear to my heart. 
last thing on my mind. I loved listening to Clarence White do that one, and, and Tony's cut is amazing. I mean, God, I'm you know to think through the track list. I don't know; they're all so great. That's uh, what makes it one of those probably, records, isn't it? One of the things that spooked me so bad when I was a kid was that that chord on House Carpenter, that very first <laughs> chord. You know, it's like E minor nine or or well, no, I don't know. I don't know how you think of it, but you know, E B F sharp A, um, that opening chord on House Carpenter is like the most chilling thing to me. I, I just I've loved that forever. So good. It's an extraordinary thing. It's such a, a sort of haunting performance. And it's it sits beautifully amongst the rest of it because there's a lot of fairly major key stuff on there and stuff that resolves nicely and sits in a major scale and then just that then just from the opening chord he sort of leaves you hanging and you know that you're not on solid ground anymore. Yeah, and so much of that song is sang over just that one chord. Basically, the whole song. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I have to. I mean, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> Go back and listen <laughs> through it all again. But I'm pretty sure the whole song is um, just over that one, that one chord, which is just so good. Doesn't need anything else. And because the chord's not changing that much, you really get to hear what he's doing with the rhythm on it as well. Um, because that that's that's the thing that's changing, and that's uh, like fascinating. Right, that's um, the thing. I mean, he's there's just as much going on in that song as any of the others. You know, maybe not so much harmonically, but um, yeah, like the dynamically and just like the way he syncopates those rhythms and stuff. It's just yeah, it's great. Yeah, I really like what you were saying about um, those first few notes of the song Church Street Blues as well. There's something I've always been a huge fan of an album that has a sort of mission statement at the beginning. Like the first song has something about it that says, this is what you're in for. And like those first few notes, it's, you know, first time you hear it, you're like, I, I haven't heard anything like this before. Yeah, it's that. And it's also to me that that song always just is so it's like a sigh of relief. You know, it's so it's just amazing. It's beautiful. And you hear them, playing through that great syncopated cross picking and you you don't have any doubts that he's going to pull it off. You know, you just sit back and, and, and hear it. It's just great. Yeah. It's an incredibly complete and sort of assured and confident. But it's like you say, you know, the, and with the vocals as well, they're all, it's so there and it's so kind of, there's no, you're not sitting there. So on the edge of your seat, hoping nothing goes wrong. Like some voices are exciting to listen to, and some playing is exciting to listen to because you can feel it's on the edge. And this, like, it's just not on the edge. It's just right in the middle of where it's supposed to be, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, and it's it's. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I could describe it any better myself. It just, it's exactly what it's set out to be. Cool. That was Jake Eddy. Uh, my next guest is. Justin Moses. Um, Justin is a fantastic multi-instrumentalist, as I'm sure you all know. Um, and yeah, I interviewed Justin quite a while ago now. It was one of the first interviews that I did, actually, on the podcast. Um, and I went to see Justin play with Sierra Hole over in London towards the end of last year uh, and got to meet him, which was great. And so I sent him a message and asked if he'd come on and do this, and I'm delighted he said yes. Um, he's a big Tony Rice fan, and yeah, another really cool chat about Tony and about Church Street Blues. So here's Justin Moses. Yeah, so to me, the cool thing about Church Street Blues is really hearing Tony in, uh, uh, you know, the most stripped down 
formed, you know, it's just him, his guitar and his singing on most of it. Why it played rhythm on the instrumental stuff, but uh, it's really getting to hear the essence of his playing and, and his singing, you know, and uh, that's just it was really cool to me to hear that. Like, uh, you know, when I first got into bluegrass, I guess any sort of music is probably like this, where you know you you start searching out people in the genre or whatever it is that you're wanting to hear and then you know you meet friends and and they all have recommendations and that's how it was uh, Tony's introduction to me was is uh you know I had a, f a friend that I made uh, Keith Garrett who introduced me to the Bluegrass Album Band and to uh, other Tony records and uh Church Street Blues was one of those and I'll be honest in saying to, for me personally it didn't hit me as much as the other stuff did immediately just because it was, it's a little bit more of a somber record and I was really into the bluegrass stuff like with banjo and everything like that but I mean you know a few years later uh, you just really give it a chance and really listen to it and, and understand just how great hearing his singing and playing that uh, exposed is you know that vulnerable that uh, you know um, intimate you know of a thing it's just uh, it's a great record yeah and there's a certain um well, there's a certain thing that tony does on that record that you that if he did it on other records you wouldn't hear it but he wouldn't do it on other records because he doesn't need to but just that um that lovely melodic it's almost like melodic rhythm playing or rhythmic melody playing or it sits in between the two so beautifully with the cross picking right. and just it's and it's it's sort of it's sort of unique Entirely, yeah. Uh, a lot of people try to to emulate Tony in a lot of different ways, um, but he he had a touch, you know, with his right hand that uh, just made it sound like Tony Rice, and uh, you can't uh, can't replicate it. And it's sort of disarming because it sounds so natural it makes it sound like it's probably simple and probably doable. And then you listen to it and you see what goes into it and you think, no, of course that's not simple. And of course that's not doable. That's just, you know, but it's, he makes it sound so fluid. It sounds deceptively simple. Uh, yeah, most definitely. Um, and, and, you know, for some of the music that he played, it is a little more simple as far as the, you know, the melodies and things like that. And that's part of the beauty of, of the whole record is that it's, I mean, not that there's not, uh, interesting things, obviously it's all very interesting, but, uh, it's very accessible, you know, to people that like, um, bluegrass or like, like more old time sound and stuff. There's things for them there too. And, and uh, it's just a very digestible record. Yeah. And it's one of those that, um, you can approach it from any angle, like song choice, guitar playing, singing, arrangement, and there's stuff there to keep you thinking for years. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. Like a talent that's as, as good as he is, like uh, he has all those elements, you know. Like you, you could only like Tony for his guitar playing, or you could only like Tony for his singing, or the songs he chose. I mean, that that's one of the biggest things with Tony, too, is just his you know, sensibility and, and choice of material. I mean, it's so good. Um, there's a whole 
whole thing to that. You know, if you only liked him for the songs he chose, that would be <laughs> worthy, uh, you know, praise and worthy uh, of of his, uh, you know, adoration as a musician. as just his uh, ability to, to choose cool songs and that fit him, too, you know. That's a big thing with artists is, you know, finding songs that are, that are great songs, but fit your voice, fit how you sound, fit your overall vibe and aura, you know, and, and he, he did that as well as uh, anybody. Yeah, it's funny. I've been doing a lot of interviews about Doc Watson over the past couple of months for a thing I'm yeah. putting out next week for what would have been his 100th birthday. And it's the, the same thing people sort of talk about is an artist who is able to, who didn't, you know, not renowned for writing a lot of material, but just selected right. stuff so well and made it theirs. Yeah. And that's something that I personally admire a lot, you know, as somebody who tries to <clears throat> play and sing. I mean, I've written a, a song here or two there, you know, like co-written, but uh, I'm not a songwriter either. But uh, I, I see, you know, how cool it is for somebody like either one of those guys you just mentioned, Tony or Doc, to um, to find songs that, uh, that suit them so well. I, I, I aspire to, uh, you know to find songs in the same sort of manner that, that fit what I, you know, think I sound like. And yeah. I think somebody who's sort of, uh, sort of still playing and singing now, who does that really well is Del McCurry. He's just able to oh. bring stuff in from wherever he sees it and, you know, make it his. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. He and, uh, I'm sure Ronnie and Rob, you know, bring things to the table, but, uh, Dale's had such a long career and over the whole span of it, he's, he's been that way. He's been able to, to find things that just suit his voice so well. And, uh, you know, he has such a unique voice to begin with. It's, uh, it's really cool to, uh, to find that stuff that, uh, showcases it. It's such a yeah, great yeah, way. Yeah, totally. And is there, is there anything on the Church Street Blues record, any particular tracks that you like particularly fond of or? Oh, I I just pulled it up and listened to it a little bit before this. No, no, I need to talk about it. And um, I mean, really, Church Street Blues, you know, the title track is, is to me, one of the absolute standouts. Um, and I mean, I, it's hard for me because, you know, I, I like them all and I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> uh, leave out the ones that I that I really like. But um. Uh, you know, I like the instrumentals too. Being a, a player, you know, I, I've always liked uh, the tune "Cattle in the Cane," and um, it's so great to hear his take on that and his take on uh, "Gold Rush." Even you know, I mean, it's like uh, they're they're all amazing. Uh, it's uh, those two have sort of become the standard ways of playing those tunes now, haven't they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he sort of uh, set the standard on that, and uh, I mean, Jerusalem Ridge too, as far as guitar player goes. Like, uh, uh, I can't imagine sort of hearing the tune and not like if you've heard Tony's version, you know, regardless of what you choose to play, there's probably going to be some element of of uh, you know his sort of sound and take that that is with you in your mind as you're playing, regardless of whether you quote actual notes or licks that he played but uh just the sound that he makes when he plays it you know yeah it's interesting just i think tony in general as a guitarist there's 
has left such a mark on bluegrass guitar that whenever you hear anybody play blue, bluegrass guitar, there's a bit of Tony in there somewhere. It's, you know, it's sort of, it's, I talked to Marcel Aldans from the Lessons with Marcel YouTube channel. He said he sort of talks about bluegrass guitar as the pre-Tony Rice years and the post-Tony Rice years because there's just so much <laughs> of that sound in everybody who plays now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like uh, I can't imagine. Like I said, I can't imagine, you know, having heard him and uh, and not taking some of that with. You know, it's like uh, it feels so elemental to the the guitar. You know, like the essential sound of of the guitar. He seemed to be able to pull out. You know, and um, when when something seems that defined, it, uh, it it's hard to not hear that when you when you go to go to play yourself and i'm sure i mean you know like you said it's it's almost universal a lot of people have their own sound and have their own things they do and uh in a really good way but yeah i think somewhere in there <laughs> if you're a bluegrass guitarist since tony rice you've probably taken away at least a piece of that yeah, and it's really interesting, like, sort of looping back to what you said at the beginning about one of the things that makes this record so cool is that it is so different from all the other stuff. Because it's yeah. like, there is, he didn't really, you know, Skaggs and Rice <laughs> has got a similar feel in places, but it's also its own thing yeah. entirely. But it's, right. it sort of is special because it's the only time he really did this. And it's so perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Uh, and I heard, I guess, that, um, you know, there was a little bit of skepticism about it at first, you know, I guess with the label and different things and, uh, you know, but uh, I suppose uh, he won them over once he actually, you know, showed them what it was and how it sounded and everything. It's a, um, it's a bold move in a way, like for somebody that has been a, a bluegrass player in a, in a band sort of situation to make a record like that, but... Uh, if if anybody you know could do it and and make it something that everybody wanted to hear, it was definitely Tony Rice. Well, I, interestingly, I heard the same story twice from Tim Stafford and from uh, Chris Eldridge that Tony talked to his label about this record, and they weren't that interested, so he just took it somewhere yeah. else without telling them. Yeah. <laughs> and the first they heard about it was when it came out. Oh, <laughs> is that is that the, the? I guess that's the story then. Yeah, yeah. Any, they just for whatever reason they weren't feeling. And I guess with you know bluegrass album band stuff out and that wave of popularity of Tony doing a bluegrass band thing, they're probably like, well, why do, we don't really want you doing like a Gordon Lightfoot album. We just want more bluegrass. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I even you know I referenced at the very beginning that like even me like uh, you know. I was just a really big bluegrass fan in my, I guess, teenage years and, you know, into my 20s, whatever. Like, I, I liked really, I mean, I liked really traditional and really progressive bluegrass, but uh, I was just particularly fond of the more, like, upbeat, you know, uh, more banjo-driven stuff. So it took me, like I said, a little bit just to uh, even be open to it. Only, you know, it's it's a lack of musical maturity on my part, you know, so it's like, you know, you grow into it, but um, it's sort of, uh, it can be that way all the way up to, <laughs> you know, label status, you know, where they, they, you know, expectation is one thing and like it has to be this way or something. And then, you know, 
just takes the right person to have uh, vision and 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 accept uh, great musicality for what it is, you know. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I think when you're younger and you listen to music, you define your territory much more clearly than you do when you. I remember like listening to a lot of rock music as a kid and dismissing some bands because they just weren't rock enough. And I like, listened back to yeah. the records now, and that's a great record. That's a great. Yeah. And I dismissed it at the time as being no, that just doesn't fit the parameters of what I do. <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah. It, it, well, you know, and I think in some ways, uh, as a a player, it almost can help you. You know, it can almost help you like dial in on what you want to do. You know, but uh, as a listener, you know, again, just kind of uh, aging and becoming, you know, more open to hearing things. It, it, you know, you really learn to appreciate a a, a lot more wide <laughs> a spectrum of things, and uh, it's it's a beautiful thing to to get there. You know, to get there in life where you uh, appreciate all the different things. And I think there's something nice about um, trusting somebody else's musical vision because you like their musical sensibility and they may take you to some places that you're not entirely sure about, but you're always going to follow them there because they want to go there and you go, well, if you want to go. It's like Chris Thiele will do all sorts of things and I'm always going to follow him and have a listen to see what he's doing, but I'm sometimes going to be confused when I get there, but that's okay. You know, yeah, because yeah. I trust right. that he's going to the places he's supposed to be going to. Yeah, yeah, that's a beautiful thing with like uh, um, musicians like that. And of course, this record uh, we're talking about today, Church Street Blues and Tony. I mean, it's it's the epitome of that. Like it's it's him taking it where he knows it needs to be. You know, I think he was completely right. <laughs> yeah, well, the fact we're talking about it forty years later, it's a pretty good sign. Definitely, yeah. My next guest is Marcel Ardans from the Lessons with Marcel YouTube channel who's been on the podcast before talking about Tony's guitar style. Um, Now, Marcel has put together a book of transcriptions of Tony's music. He's transcribed a lot of Tony Rice's music, um, probably including half of Church Street Blues. And there is a book you can get. He put out a free book of transcriptions, and it is great. I think Marcel's transcriptions are as accurate as anything out there. So you can go, I'll put a link in the show notes. Do go and grab Marcel's book. Uh, It's free, but you can donate an amount of your choice to pay for it. And I would urge you to donate something because it's a valuable resource and he's put a lot of time into it. But I'm going to chat to Marcel about what he's learned through all those transcriptions and the time he's spent sort of really diving into Tony's music. Um, So another really fascinating chat. Here comes Marcel Ardans. Tony does a lot of things on the record too that... uh that aren't things that we've heard him do a ton. Uh, it's sort of the first time that we hear this floaty uh, kind of rhythm playing that has all of these arpeggios and all of these embellishments and hammer-ons, pull-offs, the double stop stuff. And, you know, I, I don't even think there is a word to describe it to this day. Um, it's, it's almost like a, a broken cross-picking, you know, cross-picking we expect regular patterns in and Tony, uh, defies the regular pattern. He just won't give it to you. And you can hear that in um, his rhythm work and some of the breaks he does for Orphan Annie. You can hear it all over Church Street Blues, of course. Um, and then on the on the Ralph McTell tune, uh, he's doing something very similar, but uh, instead of using it to just like fill space in a bluegrass rhythm, he's using it to emulate like a finger style, uh, you know, arrangement. So he it's like he approached this record and was like, all right, what if I dedicated this record to a style that no one's really heard before, but I'm excellent at, I've been able to keep secret all this time. It's wild. 
Yeah, and it's such a, a detailed, worked out, intricate thing that there must be so much intent behind it, but it also sounds deceptively effortless. It does. It does. And I wonder if the work that uh I wonder if the work that someone like Tony would put in that um I I I question if he he did it in such an analytical way to, you know, sit down and be like, this note goes here and, you know, this is my arrangement. Oh, I don't like that note. Let me change that one note. Perhaps he did. But, um, you know, my understanding of Tony's process is it was almost like more like a rock tumbler, right? He was just playing the thing over and over again and letting the tune itself, you know, smooth out the rough bits, Uh, which is, which is remarkable because I listen to something like Church Street Blues and it makes me think, what did you play this, you know, a hundred thousand times? <laughs> like how, how, how long did it have to sit in the rock tumbler to come out like that? Cause it is polished. Yeah. And when you're playing that live and singing over the top of it at the same time and everything is so kind of beautifully transparently mic'd that you can hear everything. It's like, there's nowhere to hide. No, no, there's not. Which I guess makes sense why Tony waited so long to do the record. I mean, he was um, self-admittedly, you know, he was a little terrified of doing a solo record where it was just his guitar and his voice, but kind of undeniable he rated till the the right moment. I mean, this is a lot of people's favorite Tony Rice record. Yeah, yeah. You know, it is the one. He also does a really great job with the uh, with the song choice. I mean, he normally does, but um, this album in particular has a really good mix of uh, like Norman Blake, like I said, the Ralph McTell tune. There's a Bob Dylan tune. Um, there's a Jimmy Rogers tune. There's a Bill Monroe tune. There's a lot of good songwriters that ended up on it. Um, I don't, I don't know if I can name all of them, but I mean, a great track list. Yeah, and when I started having conversations about this record, it's not the thing I expected to be talking about because the guitar playing is so astonishing. The singing is great. Like, There's so many things to talk about. Um, but it's, as soon as people started mentioning it, and pretty much everybody has said, oh, the song choice on this record is great. And uh, and it really is. There's so much variety. And yet, yeah, there's, and yeah. yet there's like an arc that goes through it as well, that it all feels connected. Yeah, he, it, it, Tony, Tony does have a, a way of doing that. He's done that on, on quite a few records, but uh, Church Street, for whatever reason, uh, it just works so good and it feels so good. Um, I can tell you right now, if I was going to order the tunes on the album, I wouldn't have put Church Street Blues first. <laughs> <laughs> but he got away with that. I don't know how he did it, but he did. It's one of those records that um, I love a record that does this, that has an opening track that's a proper sort of statement of intent. Like you're going to get something different here. Like the first track, Punch Bowl on the first Punch Brothers album or, you know, records mm-hmm. just go, right, here we go. And you're like, oh, okay. Off we- okay. <laughs> and it's it's one of those records, like from the outset, you know, you're going somewhere new. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, Church Street Blues is such a good example of this broken cross-picking thing. And um, and you're right. That is a theme that gets carried through the entire album. And I don't know. I, I almost wish I was teaching a lesson on my channel. We could get into it. But um, 
you know, he grabs, he grabs these elements of cross picking and in cross picking. A lot of times you get these patterns that, uh, that work out into regular groupings, right? You get these like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. And if you just look at the first measure of church street blues, <laughs> you can tell that he's doing some kind of cross picking, but the whole thing is just broken, right? The pattern doesn't work out here. The pattern doesn't work out there. He starts a pattern and he just moves on. Sometimes he's playing a little linear line. All of it is just so lyrical and kind of through composed as opposed to, you know, locked into this set rhythmic motif. And I don't, I don't even, I can't even think of another example of someone who's, who's nailed that style so well, the church street blue style, you just don't hear it. Um, and you've talked to some other great musicians that have done things that are influenced by that. I think of like uh, uh, critters opening to living in the Mississippi Valley um, kind of has some influence of that where he's playing the melody and he's got these cool double stops and arpeggios and stuff like that. It's definitely church street blues influenced, but uh, as much as I love that tune and I love critter, you know, it's not, it's not church street blues. It's unbeatable, you know? <laughs> but I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think most people recognize that it is what it is because Tony was who he was and there's no point trying to emulate it. Like you can be inspired by it and you can take it as a starting point, but there's no point trying to, like the only person who really comes close is Wyatt. And, yeah. you know, and it is, it's their thing. It's, you know, and you've got to find your own. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how many people struggle to, to count that opening too. I've had a lot of friends over the years that, uh, that have said things like, Oh yeah, you know, Tony drops a beat in the opening or, or it doesn't count out right. Or the pickup is weird or, or this and that they got all these opinions, but you know, as someone who's written it down maybe four or five times, it counts perfect. Um, it's just unexpected. <laughs> There's a lot of things you just don't expect there, but yeah, it works out in four perfectly. Weird. It's a bit like that drum intro to rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. It's like, it's, it yeah, just, exactly. it goes across things. And when you know what it's doing, you can count it, but it still tries to confuse you. Yeah. That's actually a really good example. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's what's happening with Church Blues too. Is there anything you particularly learn from transcribing the tunes on Church Street? Because mostly it's, it's the songs you transcribe rather than the fiddle tunes, isn't it, in the book? Yeah, I think it is. I've done Church Street Blues. I've done Cattle on the Cane. I've done Streets of London. Uh, Any Old Time, Orphan Annie. There might be more. I don't know if I've done Pride of Man or not, but um, I've done at least half the album, if not more. Um, you know, I think my favorite thing that he does on the record is this, um, suspended F chord comes up a bunch and, uh, maybe you wouldn't expect me to say something so specific, but it really does. Um, and you can listen to his breaks in church street blues. Um, it's a, it's a sus two chord. It's an F sus two. So basically he's playing like a normal F chord, but with an open G string. And uh, it happens in the first like four seconds of Church Street Blues. He already does it. It happens in the middle of the Orphan Annie break too. And um, it happens in some other spots too. I can't uh, pull them directly to mind. It might happen in any old time as well. But uh, over and over again, he keeps using this chord shape that, uh, that has this really kind of ethereal sound. And Tony doesn't really use it that much outside of the record for whatever reason it's all over this record though 
Maybe um, because of the nature of the record, it's the kind of detail you can hear, whereas in a band setting, it probably wouldn't have the effect that he desired because it'd just get a little bit lost in the mix. That's true. That's true. And it's uh, it's been a kind of an influential sound on me. I feel like I use it all the time. Do you mind if I play? I'll show you. Yeah, no, go for it. We're in tune enough. Um, if you uh, right, if you listen to Church Street Blues, that's the sound right there. up a lot and it comes up going into that chorus section uh, all right, he's doing a hammer on to uh, remove the suspension there's a lot of moments where it happens it's very interesting um, I'm not sure if I can remember the context in Orphan Annie It's right before when it goes 2-5, but I don't remember what the exact line is. But it's right there, and it's the same chord. Yeah, and there is there's something about this record, and maybe some of the other records, like the Blake and Rice stuff and Skaggs and Rice and some of the stuff with Grisman, but hearing Tony in a very sort of uh, like intimate setting without too many other instruments, there's so much stuff that, like particularly with headphones on or you know loud through decent speakers, that you just hear that you don't get any other opportunities to hear those things. Hey, you ever get this sense when you, when you listen to these recordings, especially stripped down ones, um, like for instance, in Skaggs and Rice, um, some of those cuts are just perfect. Um, you know, I, I listen to, like for instance, I particularly like that Bury Me Beneath the Willow on that record. Hmm. Um, it is perfect. Uh, and, you know, they, they track that live in a room. And uh, it's just the perfect take. It is the take. Some of the other songs on that record, on Skaggs and Rice, I feel like could have been different takes. Like, I don't I don't feel strongly about the take, right? But, like, they nailed Buried Me Beneath the Willow. <laughs> uh, when I listen to Church Street Blues, I feel like everything is a perfect take. Um, you know, and there's, there's even some moments, like, at the end of Orphan Annie, if you listen to Tony Rice's vocal... Um, and the very last chorus, he feels like he's losing steam a little bit. Feels like uh, he feels like he's losing a little bit of energy, and he even puts a weird run at the end of a phrase that uh, that he doesn't do anywhere else. And and it's still a perfect take. I wouldn't change anything about it. I love it. I actually think it's better because of that. Right? Everything is adding to the quality of the take. Um, I, I'm looking at the track listing right now and I'm thinking, man, are there any of these that I don't feel strongly about? But I feel strongly about all of them. And that's not true of a lot of these other records. I feel like eh, you could have done one more. Maybe there could have been a special one. Yeah, and it is the closest I, I feel to having the opportunity to sit in a room and listen to, like to know what it would have been like to sit in a room and listen to Tony play. Because the... the it, 
for all the detail you can listen to, there's sort of all of that falls away and just leaves you with an experience of somebody communicating to you in such a direct and sort of intimate and fully engrossing way. It sort of does both. You can listen to every pick stroke direction, every note, or you can just sort of take a bath in it almost. Yeah, I like I like how you've said that. Uh, I've experienced that when when trying to write this stuff down, right? You're trying to listen for every pick stroke. You almost can't, right? You get distracted by the entire package. You just start listening to it. And I think that's maybe the magic of it is that the the difficulty and the intricacy and the sheer jaw-dropping how on earth is he doing that sort of level of it totally does disappear. Like there's There's so much music that is extraordinary that you notice how extraordinary it is while you're listening to it. And that's half of the, the joy of listening to it, maybe. But it's yeah. it's also maybe some of the best acoustic guitar playing of all time on record. But at the same time, you can just listen to it and go, oh, nice song. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, <clears throat> you know, I... Uh... Uh, I had a very interesting trip when I was in my mid twenties. Um, I lived on the West coast for a long time and I had the opportunity to, uh, come visit the South and we flew into Nashville and we sort of did a loop and went back to Nashville and flew back. And, um, it was a very, uh, kind of emotional experience for me because, uh, to me, it's kind of like a lot of, uh, places and things that I've heard about or just kind of fairy tales. Right. But they were going to be, real suddenly you're there and you're just looking at it and uh so the first night we got there uh in nashville we were staying very close to the ryman auditorium and i remember i walked over to the ryman auditorium just to look at it and uh it was like two in the morning you know and i was just kind of like you know crying in the street being like oh my god i'm here mm-hmm. right and i remember on the walk back i also passed church street and um and I wasn't looking for it or anything. It just, but it shocked me. And that was also uh, kind of an emotional moment. I don't even know if Church Street Blues is about Church Street in Nashville, but I remember it hitting me uh, so hard that, like, oh, I'm here. Um, you know, I'm I'm sort of in the right part of the country to experience all this. We we had a fantastic trip. We saw all kinds of, you know, famous bluegrass locations, but uh, but yeah, that was a really heavy one, and that was. On night one, like I said, at like two in the morning, I should have been asleep, but I was like, I want to go see the Ryman. And uh, yeah, I ran into Church Street and that was heavy, all because of this album. It's funny, isn't it? The power some stuff has on you. I remember being in my 20s and doing a gig in Liverpool in some basement bar and we did our sound check. And then when I got a drink and the guy behind the bar went, the Beatles used to rehearse over there. It was just like, okay, okay. You know, that, this this thing that is yeah. such a huge part of my upbringing is, was actually real. Just actual people stood there and did those things, you know. Right here, yeah. Yeah. And there's something about yeah, that's that. A... Just those. That, that's the extraordinary thing. So talking about what we've been talking about for the past few minutes, it's the level of communication on that record, because that's what it is. All art is and it is an attempt to communicate something. And it's such a comprehensively successful attempts to communicate something. I like that. 
Next up is somebody else who spent some time uh, doing a deep dive into Tony's music uh, when he was editor of Acoustic Guitar Magazine, and that's Scott Nygaard, obviously, uh, as we all know, a fantastic guitarist in his own right, but really sort of studied Tony's style and Tony's picking, and, and yeah, just really another really cool chat about some of the stuff he learned about how Tony approaches stuff and, and just some insights into that. So, yeah, here comes Scott Nygaard. And then, you know, when I did the deep dive into it, a lot of it was just because I really wanted to try and understand. Well, I did the interview with him and I wanted to understand his picking, you know, try and get a handle on it. I remember Dan Crary once said that he had a much simpler life than Tony Rice did because he had to make, you know, thousands of fewer decisions every day. You know, his idea was that Tony's picking was just random. And, and it was kind of a joke, but still, that was the sort of idea was like, you watch his hand and it doesn't seem, it just seems to be, it doesn't seem to have any pattern, just sort of structure of what he's doing. And so I, I was fortunate that there was a homespun, I can't remember which, there's two homespun lessons with Tony. I can't remember which one, maybe the second one. And there was a version of Church Street Blues on it, which I'd always loved. And of course, and I sort of that sat down thinking, oh, I just want to learn the way Tony plays this. And then once I started looking at it and got the video of it and, you know, close up video, and then I managed to, you know, be able to slow it down. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to transcribe the picking and see what's going on, you know, see if there's a pattern. And once I did, it became clear that there was, there was a, you know, really clear logic to it and that he had a method of playing um, that he probably, he couldn't really articulate, or maybe he could, but when I interviewed him, you know, it was just, he sort of dismissed it as, I tried to get him to, I sort of said, you don't do that alternating picking, do you? And I said, no, no, that's that's too hard. I don't know how you guys do that. And, uh, but when you look at it, you know, look at his, his picking, is there's this really specific thing that he's doing and that he's finding like the most efficient way to play any group of notes, um, you know, with upstrokes or downstrokes. And he's basically deciding whether he plays an upstroke or downstroke is, is sort of decided by what he's going to play next. Right. So if he, if he plays a note on the G string, for instance, and he's going to follow it with a note on the D string. He's going to play that note on the G string with an upstroke because that's going to put his pick closer to the D string. And vice versa, if he's going to follow it with a note on the B string, then he plays it with a downstroke because that'll put his pick closer to the B string. And it's incredibly consistent. I mean, everything I transcribed is absolutely consistent. And it's it's kind of cool to think about it in a way... Because it's sort of, you know, most people teach the alternating picking thing because it's a good way to really get your time down. You sort of have this idea, it's just back and forth, and you can use the pick as a, you know, basically kind of like your hand as a metronome. But of course, the reality is it doesn't really work that way because your your pick has to travel different distances, you know, depending on whether you're crossing strings. So he completely avoids string crossings. Right, in order to get this really fluid, um, really fluid and fast, you know, style, and um, and it's also sort of 
interesting to me that like, you know, if you think about it, like his time is in his fretting hand, not in his picking hand. So it's like his time is based on the notes he wants to play, right? So it's almost like, like the most important thing is what note you're going to play. And then his pick figure out, figures out a way to play it in time and, mm -hmm. you know, the best way, which, you know, that's sort of, I don't think he ever thought of that, but it's just interesting because that means in a sense, well, one thing, it, it means a couple of things. I think that like he improvises in phrases, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that a lot of people, especially who are starting improvising, don't really understand that. They think they're just supposed to sort of come up with, you know, um, like, okay, I'm going to play this note, then I'm going to play another note, and then I'm going to play another note. But no, it's it's sort of like just speaking in sentences, right? Or speaking in, in phrases that you then combine into sentences, and you combine into paragraphs, and eventually a story, you know, story. And so because of the way he plays, he, he kind of has, when he's improvising, he has to he has to know what he's going to play next, right? So I think he's like he's playing in phrases, and if you listen to his playing, that's definitely what he's doing. And the reality is that's what everybody's doing. There's even a sort of there's a discussion in the, the kind of jazz scene recently that people that jazz musicians improvise a lot less than you think they do. That especially like you you hear people like John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins would, you know, just spend days practicing. And it's, you know, and it's not that they're, they're, and they're practicing specific things so that they can play them fast. And that's the thing. If you're going to play at speed, you have to be, you have to have like five, six, seven, eight notes into your fingers. You can't be deciding note by note what you're going to play. And that becomes really really sort of obvious if you think about the way Tony plays. And the really reality is that you can hear that in the way everybody plays. But it's just interesting that that becomes sort of an essential part of the way he the way he picks the guitar. And there's so many sort of fascinating bits in there, like just the idea that Tony said to you that alternate picking was too difficult and he didn't know how he did it. And yet most people who can happily do that have had a go at trying to pick like Tony and been utterly thrown oh. by it. You yeah, know, it's, it's impossible. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. no, it's not impossible. Like Wyatt can do it. And I, you know, other people can do a version of that. I think it's just, you can't just sort of start trying to play like that. You know, it's like anything, um, you know, you could learn to play the bluegrass banjo and with not, without, you know, missing your middle finger, right? You know, Jerry gets Garcia. Most people would say, oh, that's impossible. I can't do that, you know? Um, and that's, I think that's just the way Tony always played. Um, you know, he had Clarence White as a model. He didn't have Doc as a model. He didn't hear Doc until he'd been playing for a while. And I think if you watch Clarence's hand, Clarence can absolutely do straight ahead, alternating fast fiddle tune picking, but he's got much more. He's he's playing around with his his picking style in order to sort of emphasize certain things. Um, and so my guess is, you know, he may have sort of seen Clarence. I mean, when I started playing, I was flat picking. I basically was, you know, listening to Doc. That's kind of who I first heard. So. Um, 
So in doc, you watch his hand and it's just, that's what it's doing. And I don't, I don't think I ever was told for, until I've been playing for a while that that's the alternating picking is what you should do. It's just, oh, that's what doc did. His hand just moved like that. And that, you know, and at some point I realized I was dragging my pick on some places, but I don't think Tony had that model. And if he had like, you know, if you listen to like jazz guitar players, especially from the fifties or Django or something, they're not, you know, there's no sort of obvious model to do, to, to, to use alternating picking. So I think, and there wasn't even, there was even a sort of sense in jazz, there was a sort of way you taught that you, if you're moving up to the next string, you use a downstroke. If you're using low, you know, to the lower string, you use an upstroke, that that's just the sort of, you know, maybe I think it might have been called efficient picking or something. So maybe he and heard it, that at some point. And it ties in on a smaller level with exactly what you're saying about playing in phrases, is that within those phrases, those groups of notes, and like and Church Street Blues is the prime example of this, is the way that syncopation works. You could play exactly what Tony's playing and alternate pick it, but the emphasis would be in slightly different places and those little rolls and the little sort of circular motion that goes on within that, those few phrases. So much of that is down to pick direction, isn't it? Yeah. And there are also, th there are things that are not just difficult in to play Church Street Blues the way he plays it um, because of, I mean, there are some things are almost impossible to play alternating ping. There's one point, like, you would have to do an, a downstroke on the B string and follow it immediately with an upstroke on the a string, you know, like if you're going from like a C, you have to go from the C up top of the C below, you know, and, and obviously his, he's doing, he's hitting an upstroke on the C and then a downstroke and, you know, nails it. Um, but there's also, and, it, and it's funny in that um, homespun tape, he meant, he sort of dismisses, hey, oh, it's just, you know, that I'm just doing that George Shuffler style cross picking, you know, down, up, down, down, up, you know down, down, up, down, down, up, down, up, you know, and then he starts playing and he's not doing that at all. And it also, what, and the thing that's interesting about that is if you play like that's down, down, up, you know, three, three, two kind of cross picking, you get a very specific kind of rhythm that repeats. And, it, you know, and his playing doesn't do that at all. Um, you know, I mean, there's all this rhythmic stuff in there that's not based on, you know, this, this picking pattern. It's based on the way he wants to phrase the melody. And so it becomes, to me, it becomes a much more interesting because it's the way becomes more the way a singer would, would phrase the melody. You know, you get this different, different phrasing, different rhythmic emphasis. Um, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating way to play. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I work with, you know, some banjo players at Pighead Nation and it's like Bill Evans does these courses and it's like, well, this is exactly the way Earl played it. This is exactly the way, the way, um, J.D. Crow played this. And you can't really do, this is exactly the way Tony Rice played this. You know, just, it's not, it's not possible. And yet he's like, he, he's really the originator of bluegrass guitar, isn't, you know, but. You can't play the way he plays. He's, he can only do it. And it's funny what you were saying before about watching that homespun video and, you know, 
wondering exactly how much of it Tony would be able to explain to you as well. Um, I interviewed Happy Tram a while ago for the podcast and was asking him about that particular thing. And he was saying, you know, one of the reasons he ended up sitting in on that video and asking Tony so many questions was that Tony just wasn't necessarily a natural teacher in the way that some yeah. of the other players are. They can sit and they can explain exactly what they're doing to you. And he said, Tony just wasn't thinking of it in those terms. And I remember seeing a quote from Tony somewhere saying that he had a few guitar students in the early days and he just was no good as a teacher and he stopped doing it because he didn't feel he was any good at teaching. Um, I think what what I get from these kind of chats with people is that one thing he was great at is the much bigger picture conversations about how to be a musician and why to be a musician and how to think rather than put your finger here, put your pick there much more sort of philosophical discussions almost. Yeah. I think, um, I think, yeah, I think the, a lot of the way he just approached it was, this is what I want to do, you know, in his head. This I want to get this sound. I'll play my guitar until I get that sound. And I think it's, and most people want to go, well, where did you, you know, what notes are you picking? Where do you, where do you put your fingers and, and all that stuff? But it's a little bit like talking about tone. You know, when I try and describe to people how you get good tone or how you develop tone and you can sort of talk about like, oh, you position, you know, you pick this way or this, your fingers like this and that. But then you sort of look at all these different people who, you know, like you can look at the way different people play who get good tone and they tend to all play very differently. Right. So there's not mm -hmm. to me, it's more a matter of you play the guitar until you've find a sound that you like and then you kind of try and repeat it and you try and think about like what did I do there because it's not just like you know you've got a pick and you've got a guitar you've got these hands that move and work in different ways so everybody's going to be a little bit different you know and so it feels like for Tony yeah I mean he definitely had in his head what he the sound that he wanted how how to play you know with um, and, you know, I think he would experiment with different things. Like I remember he told me that, you know, he started playing with lighter strings and lower action when he started playing with Chrisman. Um, and, you know, so obviously he was experimenting with some different things, but, but yeah, I think, I, and I think it's interesting that, you know, he, I don't remember hearing that he or had students really that, yeah, you you sort of learn how you play by trying to teach other people, you know. And if you never had that experience, then you don't really you don't really figure it out, you know. And in some ways, maybe it's better, you know. <laughs> that was Scott Nygaard. Always enjoyed chatting to Scott. Um, next up is a guitarist called Jason Kaiser, who some of you will know, some of you may not. Um, Jason is. Jazz guitarist, also a flat picker, um, and he's studied extensively with Wyatt Rice, and Wyatt has sort of been his mentor for a while, and he's a big fan of Tony's guitar style and Wyatt's guitar style, and I thought it'd be really cool to talk to somebody who has a foot firmly in sort of bluegrass and flat picking, but also a foot in jazz as well, because Tony was very influenced by jazz playing. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it'd be cool to chat to Jason. So here comes Jason Kaiser. When I first heard Church Street Blues, uh, it was first when I started. I mean, that was one of the first. That was one of the first records, man, that I heard of Tony's, where I heard Tony playing his solo stuff at that level, 
And then as well, uh, Wyatt and him playing those duets, you know, like Gold Rush and Cattle and the Cane and stuff. So, I mean, that, that kind of, that all just knocked me way out. You know, I mean, it was just like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, excuse me, but yeah, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, I was studying jazz at the time and I had, you know, I had been getting into bluegrass at that point. I had already been getting into bluegrass for quite some time. I had taught myself banjo and mandolin and uh, was already flat picking and listening to like David Greer and Norman Blake specifically. Um, and I remember hearing that record and I was just like, what? <laughs> Where, where else can I find stuff like this, you know? Um, and then at that point, I started kind of just digging into, like, I, like, looked at the liner or tried to find liner notes and tried to just find, like, history about that record. And then when I decided to audition at East Tennessee State, that was one of the tunes, Church Street Blues specifically, Tony's, kind of in Tony's style, although, you know, no one can play like him, right? But, you know, that was the tune that I had uh, prepared to audition with at East Tennessee State. Um, and I mean, that was going to East Tennessee state. The only reason really was to study with Wyatt Rice, you know, I mean, it was just like to get any of that kind of technique in that vocabulary and that timing and tone. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's a long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's a good answer. And did you, so at that audition, did you have to play church street blues for Wyatt? No. So, uh, I ended up, well, at the time I was still living in California. I'm from the Bay area. Um, so I was, I had actually just recorded a video and I arranged it instead of doing like a full solo version. I did like a version where I arranged it with a band and then kind of broke into a solo part at some point. Um, and then I just recorded the video, but that was one of the tunes like that tune and that album had such a huge early impact on wanting to get into flat picking. You know, and if you listen to the stuff that I just sent you like today, I mean, it's it's apparent, you know, like that the the influence of that record, the influence of the solo playing and the influence of um, vocabulary with chords and, you know, different timing ideas, you'll hear it. You know, I mean, it's just oh, it's crazy. And just those like I say, just just those three things you mentioned of kind of vocabulary chord voicings and timing i mean you could write a dissertation on any one of those for, for tony's yeah. playing they're they're all things that are tony has a unique approach to yeah man and i think i mean i've spent many many hours discussing this with wyatt and i'm sure he's told you a lot of great stuff too but i think one of the areas where all that was kind of coming into the forefront was because of how much listening tony was doing specifically to jazz you know because i think that I, you know, I think it's like if you want to, if people really want to understand where Tony was coming from, not only in spontaneity, but with chord voicings and vocabulary, language, timing. I mean, man, he was listening to Bill Evans, McCoy Tyner, Coltrane, Miles, Enhop, Oscar Peterson. I mean, that's like, you know, and Wyatt's, I've been fortunate, man, not only studying with Wyatt, but I've been fortunate to really get those records that they would listen to that they would listen to together. Like he showed me those. So it's kind of cool to get into the inside of what he might've been listening to, to where he may have been communicating ideas, whether it be bluegrass or new acoustic music or whatever. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I did talk to Wyatt, he talked about actually one of the reasons his playing sounds a lot like Tony's is because he listened to Tony. 
a lot. Yeah. He'd just sort of, when he lived with him, he'd just sit and listen to him playing and sort of absorb it, absorb it through him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, I think, and I think that's one of the most important things that we can note, right? Whether it's listening to Tony or listening to Miles, it's list listening, right? It's like to have the language and to have that kind of embedded and percolating constantly. I think that's when things can naturally start to come out and you're playing, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's cool, man. Like it's, I mean, why it's, why it's awesome. And he's got his own language and he's got his own thing i mean when i hear him play i'm like oh yeah that sounds like wyatt <laughs> you know it's like slightly different but um um yeah man and so coming to i guess coming to tony's music from mm-hmm. a jazz background like in many ways Church street blues is one of the least jazzy of his records in many ways yeah you know and it's the was that partly what really hit your ear about it the first time you heard it? Yeah, I think so. I think it was like, it was, I mean, it was just the man tech, the tech, the technical facility and the, and the tone and the, the so difference, I think the difference from what I had been listening to and, and studying. And I was just thinking about like, I was like, man, if I could just get any of that or try and understand that, to be able to try and even play at half that level where I could bring it into a jazz sound or something else. It was just, it just blew me away, man. It was just like, wow. You know? So I, when I found out that Wyatt was teaching at East Tennessee state after I had listened to the record and found out that he was playing on it and I was just like, Holy shit, I want to go there, (laughs) you know? And uh, that album I think was a huge catalyst in my early in my early like fundamental, you know, understanding of how to approach flat picking and, and that kind of stuff, man, that's like an album that I would, that's like a desert Island album, you know, for, for that stuff. <laughs> it's an interesting one because like, I don't know as much about the world of jazz guitar. I know a bit, but not a lot, but there's a, in fields where there are lots of great guitar players, there are also a lot of great guitar players who don't often play solo and getting to hear somebody play on their own, and sort of accompany themselves with or without any vocal. Like some of you know, some of the um records of Ella Fitzgerald with just guitar, you know, and yeah. some of those things are equally hard hitting when you first hear them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I love that idea of just solo guitar, man. Like even like I said, even yesterday in the studio, I was just like, All right, let's you know, trying to approach David Grisman's Opus 38 without an accompaniment part. I was, and I was like, no, I'm not going to put down a rhythm track. I was just like, I'm just going to play the head, blow over it, and just go, you know, and it's just like, man, like Joe Pass is another one that comes to mind. I know that Tony listened to Joe. Uh, Tony was also really into uh, Jerry Reed. I'm sure Wyatt mentioned that, you know, Jerry Reed was like, and have you listened to uh, – this is kind of a side note, but have you listened to Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins duo records? Oh, no. Oh, you should check them out. Mm, um, I'm forgetting – man, I'm forgetting the names right now. But if you just typed in Jerry Reed and Chet Atkins, there's two. There's at least two that they did together that are super cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, Chet Atkins, man. Great. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it, there's something about um, – I think it's like some of the – stuff David Greer's recorded just on his own is, you know, hearing this, this sort of, you have to focus on the tone because you can't 
you can't fudge it because somebody else has got that covered. You can't just no, focus exactly. on timing and vocabulary. You ha- your no. tone has to be there. Or players like Eric Sky, or want to hear Bob Miller play on his own, or you know, it's that. There's something about the the fullness of a sound. Yeah, yeah, and you, I mean, I think I think the tone's a huge part of it, right? Like, I mean, when Tony's cross picking and playing the Church Street Blues stuff, it's just like the t- I think I think the timing thing too. Like it sometimes when I hear Tony flat pick, whether he's playing by himself or whether he's playing with a band. Although, especially when he's playing by himself. And it's, and it's interesting. I think about this quote that he had said, um, he talks, I remember when he was playing with, um, Peter Rowan, there's this quote that he said where he was like, I think about if I was McCoy Tyner or if McCoy Tyner was up here, have you heard this quote? He said, if McCoy Tyner was up here playing piano in this bluegrass setting, how would I, you know, like, how would he do that? And it's like when I hear Tony play by himself or when I hear him play through a, a chord or he's cross-picking, I mean, he, man, he just – it reminds me of a piano player. You know, it just sounds – it sounds like if Bill Evans was playing guitar, but not Bill Evans, you know what I mean? It's just like incredible. It's that. I think that's the thing that you get most on Church Street Blues or maybe only yeah. on Church Street Blues release. You hear it's that inner movement. It's not just a big chord. Like you're hearing exactly. the stuff that goes on in the middle. Yeah, it's incredible. It's like it sounds like counterpoint. It sounds like I mean, it's just like all this stuff going on at the same time. And then there's, and you can hear the me- and the, and the crazy thing is too, right? You can still hear the melody. You know, it's like having the. I think that's another huge part of solo guitar that it's like you have to hear the melody. <laughs> you know, it's like if you can't hear the melody with what you're doing in your solo playing, it's like, well, what, what's going on? Where's the tune at some point? And that brings me to my final guest on this second part of the Church Street Blues um, anniversary celebration. And my next guest is Phil. And that might sound like a weird intro. Um, His name is Phil, and he asked me to refer to him as that. And the reason Phil is here is because he runs an Instagram Instagram account called Tony Units, which just posts the most amazing treasure trove of, like, Tony related video clips and bits of press and quotes things Tony said bits of interviews uh yes fascinating and I reached out and sort of you know wanted to know who the guy was behind this and he said just just to refer to him as Phil because it's not about him it's about Tony and Tony's sort of influence and legacy which is a cool thing um and I really wanted to talk to him because he's a big Tony Rice fan and we've heard from a lot of like well-known musicians um, you know, including some of the biggest names in bluegrass, but it's really cool. Like music, this music is also fans' music. I'm a fan. Um, Phil is a fan, and I wanted to talk to a fan um, who's primarily known as being a fan, and I'm so glad I did. It was just a really cool chat. Uh, really enjoyed it. It was really nice to connect with him. And yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes. Do go and check out his Instagram channel. Even if you don't use Instagram, you don't need to. You can go and just click and have a look. It's just. A load of really cool stuff on there, and it was yeah, just a treat to get to chat to him. So yeah, here comes Phil. I think every time I peel back a layer on Tony, there was something else there that was just almost like a mythology around the guy. Um, you know, just a kid that was born into music. All of his brothers played. His father played. Uh, his uh, his uncles played. And by the time he's eighteen, nineteen, you know. Who's this guy that's already met Sam Bush and playing in the Bluegrass Alliance and touring and doing festivals and 
giving the guitar a voice it didn't have at the age of 19 and 20. Um, you know, for that to just kind of be the starting point, uh, that was everything, uh, everything around him just seemed almost unbelievable. Um, and that's, uh, kind of what got me trying to figure out who this guy was. And because of the time period, a lot of it is really hard to find, you know, there's not a lot of video, um, there's not a lot of audio interviews. And so I wanted to just try to create a place where everything that I was finding was accessible to other people. Um, because I was having to go all over the place to try to find just scraps of trying to understand how Tony thought about music, how he thought about, um, the recording process, how he thought about him, himself as a musician. Um, and so my thought was if I could just pull that into one place initially just for myself so that I could get some of this stuff off my phone mm -hmm. and, that, uh, I could sort of create a catalog for myself. And, uh, you know, it, it struck a chord, I think with people and it's been really neat to see how, you know, how many other people share, I guess, just a deep appreciation for what he means, not just to bluegrass, but to music in general. Yeah, I can't remember who who it was that said this to me, but somebody said, like, musicians create fans, Tony created disciples. It's just yeah. like deeper level of sort of attachment there for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it, uh, in a similar thing, it may have been um, Marcel or um, someone who said, you know, there's such a distinct line especially in bluegrass, but the pre and post Tony line that's been drawn in the sand, which is there's not a ton of other musicians that, that have done that. Um, you know, you've kind of got your BB King, your Jimi Hendrix, your Stevie Ray Vaughan, where there's pre and post those musicians uh, when it comes to guitar. Um, but for the acoustic side, it's kind of Tony. Um, and I, I think, for any, any guitarist who has tried to chase his shadow, more or less, part of what makes it so wild to me, the, the more I, I learn and play is uh, just how the appreciation for how hard what he did was. Uh, because he was the guy who had to find all of those sounds, all of those notes. And it was just by woodshedding being with the guitar all the time and playing all the time. And so it was a commitment, but also just the willingness and brave. Like, I, I use bravery because it took courage to do a lot of stuff that he did and just trust his instinct. Um, and when you combine all that together, it creates a one of a kind dude that we just haven't seen in music before or since. And so like with all that as your context, so where does church street blues sitting all of that for you like do you remember when you first heard it how does it fit in with all that tony rice stuff for you i do um the first the first music i ever heard of tony's was the manzanita album um and that was the lightning bolt moment of oh this is special and different the first album i bought was church street blues because it was such a pure and raw look at just the guy and just his guitar um, and you can hear all the nuance, all the little subtleties. I mean, him breathing into the mics while he's playing. Uh, and if uh, 
I had a buddy who had a really, really nice speaker system at his house. And if you get the right kind of speakers, you can hear the texture of the pick on the strings. I mean, that just kind of is what sucked me in is the idea of it being just a pure look at how he thought about music and guitar and the relation of the guitar to what songs he chose clearly, you know, these beautifully arranged and written tunes and how he balanced the two. Um, because I know that's something that was always important to him was, you know, the guitar and the music in general was there to serve the song and to serve the poetry of the, of the music. And, um, yeah, the, the deeper and deeper you get, you see, uh, I think it was Josh Williams who said he never gets a good enough credit for being how smart he was. Um, because, you might, people would want to think, oh, well, this was just done subconsciously. I, I don't think so. I think the dynamics that he uses in the music, the dynamics that he uses throughout the songs is intentional and chosen um, because of his understanding of the intricate balance that goes into, you know, creating something that's pleasing to listen to. Yeah, and it's, I think it was Tim Stafford said to me that everything about Tony's life was about precision. And like so much of what you read about him backs that up. You can't imagine that any of the decisions about his music were arbitrary. Like Wyatt said that Tony knew exactly what he was doing before he went into the studio for each record. It was all, he had it all there in his head and he'd worked out what he wanted already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the Wyatt part of that is so interesting to me too. Um, I meant to, I meant to look it up and double check. I, but I know Wyatt was a teenager uh, from what I've read when they recorded and I'm pretty sure that's the first recordings he ever sat in with for Tony. And so the idea that Tony was going to do this record and one trusted Wyatt enough to bring him in to do it, but then also knew he may not quite be ready for exactly what I want to do, but I'm going to push him and I'm going to, I'm going to make him better through doing this uh, because I was reading something fairly recently where, um, you know, Wyatt said he had a very specific idea of how he wanted the rhythm to be carried on the tracks that he played. And Tony showed him, all right, this is what I want you to do very specifically, which is kind of out of the order for Tony, but for someone their first time sitting in, you know, he basically put it to Wyatt as once you get this down, we'll record the track is the way I understood it. And, um, Man, uh, that's kind of another side of Tony that more and more draws me in is he want his desire to push musicians to just be as good as you can possibly be um, and pull people in to just trying to challenge yourself. Um, so the fact that he dealt with his brother is something I've always I've always really appreciated, too. And that's something that in like various conversations about Tony for this, but also just Tony comes up in half the interviews I do at some point. And one thing that people always say about him is that he lifts the game of everybody else who's around him when they're playing, that like being on a stage with Tony makes you a better player. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, I heard Jerry Douglas say one time, it was like the Olympics, you know, <laughs> that, that every, everything just, is, is the bar is raised. Um, and you know, you can, 
uh, I, I posted something recently, I think it was for Doc's birthday, where it was the two of them playing together. Um, Tony and Doc both playing rhythms alternately and exchanging leads. And, you know, Doc just has that straightforward, just churning rhythm where he's going to just pump that bass. And it's really, really easy to just fall into that time because it's what everybody kind of thinks of as your traditional bluegrass sort of uh, the one and the three and the two and the four are just right where they're supposed to be. And then as soon as Tony takes over, it's like it just smacks you in the face. And the rhythm is all over the place. But the but the ones and the twos and the threes, they're all still where they're supposed to be. He mixes in all these polyrhythms that it's almost, I, I equate it to like paving a road. It's almost like he creates a freeway of space for you to just kind of fill in however you see fit. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's something that's just so hard, <laughs> so hard to appreciate because everybody's been in a jam or set, setting in with other musicians and, uh, man, it, you're, you're always better when you play with better musicians. You're as good as the band you play with and Tony being the best, um, you know, it, it's gonna, it's gonna push you cause they're not, not competitive people. Yeah, and just and I've heard the same sort of said in a totally different world, but people say say about Placido Domingo that on an opera stage everybody sings better when he's there. Like yeah. it just everybody raises their game. And it's not sure. part of it is that they want to impress it, but also part of it is just that because of what he does, yeah, everybody breathes yeah, in a think, bit more and stands up a bit more and delivers. Yeah, and I think part of there's something to having that in your ear too of someone putting exactly what should be there. In, into your ear at the time. Um, it, it's, you're not searching for, for the sound while you're on stage. Um, so it almost kind of makes it easier and that you're not having to chase the rhythm or you're not having to chase the melody. Um, he's asking, he's asking questions of you that he knows you're, you're precisely about to answer with what you're about to play next. And so, and I think that goes to his intelligence, um, understanding how he can lead in to chords and how he can lead into, you know, different verses just by subtle suggestions of different chord voicings or a quick little polyrhythm in between uh, strokes or at the end of verses that basically are sort of teeing you up as saying, all right, go. All right, do this. All right, this is what I need need you to do next. And, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's almost, it's almost like if, uh, you know, whatever outside music is the thing that you're most interested in and you walk into a, a dinner party and you don't know anybody, but your best friend is there and says, well, this is, this is my buddy, Matt. He knows everything about fill in the blank. And he just sort of opens the door for you to look like the smartest guy in the room for that thing. Um, I think Tony understood so well most of the musicians he played with that he was able to do that in a musical sense of just i know exactly what jimmy goudreau is good at so i'm going to play this to make him look like a monster when i have the chance um and man it's uh it's just a special gift for sure and it's sort of it makes church street blues doubly fascinating because he's not handing it off to other people it's all about the service of the song 
and right. you you don't get to hear Tony in that kind of context very often, where he's not making anybody else look good. He's just playing you a song. Yeah. And especially even in the context of the music he was making at the time, um, you know, he, he was really kind of on a tear during that three or four year stretch where he was doing, you know, the bluegrass album, he was doing church street. He had just finished Manzanita and to take all of this ensemble stuff, um, some of it very traditional, some of it more progressive. And then to have the thought either planted in his head or from inside himself to think, I'm just going to do a stripped down me and a guitar album. Man, it, it, t- it had to have taken a lot of guts to just say, all right, well, we're going to do this. And it'd be totally different from what people were probably wanting from him at the time. Um, and even after the fact, I mean, I know I heard in different concerts and interviews, I don't think he was probably that huge of a fan of the album in general when it got done. I think he probably appreciated some of the tracks, but, um, there's a clip from a live show, maybe in 87 or 88. I think they're at the Birchmere and somebody, um, yelled out about, a or no, they're getting ready to play Orphan Annie. And, uh, so this is a song off of Church Street Blues. And, uh, unfortunately I had to go through the horror of listening myself play this unaccompanied for the last five years or whatever it was. And so the idea that that song, which, I mean, it's one of my favorites, who doesn't love listening to Tony's arrangement of Orphan Annie, but just hearing him come out and say, God, I really wasn't happy with that. And then as soon as the bass and the mandolin and everything kicks in, he chimes in like, see, isn't that better? You got the bass. And all, doesn't that just sound better? And man, like to be that, that dedicated to chasing a specific sound that you can't even just sit back and appreciate what you're able to gift in a stripped down bear. This is me and my guitar. Um, I don't know. I've always thought that was just so strange and interesting. Um, the way he would view his own music for something that all of his fans love to death. And I think it's one of those things that, um, like I think a lot of great musicians have this is that they just sort of know where they need to go. And it might not be necessarily where anybody else wants to go. And it might not even be necessarily where they expect to go. But if you've got such a strong musical sense of self, it's like, you know, all the stories about Tony taking the idea for church street blues to his record label and them going, no, I don't think that's where you need to go. And so he takes it somewhere else and does it for another record label. Um, just that, that clarity of musical understanding of who you are and what you're supposed to be doing at a given time. It just feels like he knew what was right and what wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's trust, a trust in yourself, um, in the moment. And if you look at his career, that's, that's what he did always. Um, I mean, who in their right mind would, just after finishing 0044 with JD Crow and Ricky and Jerry and those guys, you get back from touring in Japan and say, all right, guys, I'm, I'm going to go do this thing with David Grisman and just leave because in his gut, he felt like I had to do this. And then you create this whole new genre of mind blowing 
via space grass. And then you do that for a few years and say, all right, I'm going to go chase my own sound now. And you leave that amazing group of, you know, dog and Todd and Daryl. And you go back and do the Manzanita album and you're back to bluegrass. It's just, his career was constantly filled with moments where, man, if the guy felt like he knew what was right, may not have been easy, but he was going to freaking do it. Um, and I just, it's hard to wrap your mind around how much trust that takes in yourself and conviction to just not compromise. Um, what you believe is, is the music you, you need to be playing. And, you know, the fact that we're talking about it 40 years later, celebrating that record, you know, it was a good decision. Oh, absolutely. And he was 32 years old when they cut Church Street. Um, that's younger than I am now. And, man, to to try to understand how someone could have such a clearly defined sense of who they are as a musician at that age, oh, it's... He, he, he was just different. He was different because um, it's hard to think about the fact that basically from the age of 20, you know, 20 through 40, he was constantly working and constantly changing and constantly evolving. Um, and I think that's why, you know, Church Street, along with so much of his other records, um, continue to just resonate with people. You can, you can hear it in the music. He was determined. And that's it for this Tony Rice celebration. Um, I've spent three months putting this together and sort of can't quite believe it's finally come to a close. It's been a joy talking to the 14 people I've talked to across these two episodes. Um, and it's just been a treat for me. I've had some amazing conversations. I've talked to some amazing people. I've learned things about Church Street Blues and Tony. I've sort of rethought some things I thought about it. I've listened to it with new ears. I've just... Yeah, I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it, and I really hope you've got stuff out of this as well. Um, I'm, what I'm going to do is put out a longer version of the chat I had with Wyatt back in episode one, because we talked for longer than I used, because um, some of it wasn't particularly relevant to Church Street Blues, but it's really interesting stuff. It's Wyatt Rice, and I might not get to talk to Wyatt again. I hope I do, but if I don't, I'd really like to put out the rest of the conversation so I'm going to edit a fuller version of that together and put that out um, at some point soon as well. So keep your eyes open for that. But that's it. This is the end of the Church Street Blues chat. Thanks for joining me. If you listened through this far, thanks for doing that. It's a lot of content, but hopefully you found it good. Uh, I will see you all next time. Happy picking. <laughs>